Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is 560 AM KBLU Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner in studio here with Adam Hanson and Cody Beeson. We are estate planning attorneys. We do trusts and wills. We also help people with probate and trust administration. However, we like to talk a lot about what's going on in our community, in the nation, and in the world, and political topics that affect all of us. Today, one of the issues that I'd like to talk about are hypocrites. I have, I have a hard time with hypocrites. <laughs> there are people out there that don't go to church, right? They party every weekend, and uh, they live a, a pretty rugged lifestyle. And that's fine. That's, that's their choice. But they don't put themselves out there to be a saint. And then there are those who are going to church every week. And, uh, but in their home and their lifestyle, they're maybe abusive to their wife or to their kids. Or you know, they're dishonest with their business dealings and their partners. Those are the people that really rub me wrong. Those are the people that are hypocrites. And um, they're hypocrites both you know, on a personal level or on, on an individual level, and then on a larger scale, on a social level. And in po- politics, we all hate the hypocrite that's a politician that does one thing but preaches another thing. And so I want to talk a little bit about that, specifically with um, climate change and climate activists as well as socialists and um, activists for equality, quote-unquote. And Adam, I know you wanted to talk about some AI issues and some some things that are really neat about AI and um, some scary things that are going on. So let, let's dig in with that topic first because I know that I'll drone on with mine because it's just one of those that gets under my skin. But what's going on in the AI world? In preparation for this show, we, we talked about the closing of food factories under the Biden administration worldwide and how that's really suffered. And so... As I, I was just playing around with this app called ChatGPT, it's an AI program where you can tell it to do things like, I need you to write a script to, every time I open up a Google Chrome browser, I want you to open up 100 tabs, and then it'll spit out that Java code, and I can use that, right? But it can also write for you. And so I thought, because my son came in and he said, hey, I want, uh, I want to show you this cool app that uh, can write essays. You just put in some keywords and it'll spit out this beautiful essay. It's like a human wrote it. You used to have to go hire people to do those, like write your essays for you. Yeah. Now you, the computer just does it. I, I never did, but oh. I just wrote my own. Me, me neither. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I had heard about this before because two weeks earlier, before this conversation with my son, I had gotten an email from his school saying, hey, if, if we find out that a, one of your kids is using this program to write their essays... We're gonna we're going to punish them according to the to the cheating code, whatever that you know the ethics code or whatever, just like cheating, treated the same as cheating, which it is. But anyway, so I I was already aware of it. I thought it was funny that he brought it up and showed me this. Because what what grade is this in that they're? He's in eighth grade. Okay, so it's middle school that they're having issues with it. Yeah, I think it's across the board, but I think um, you know, there his middle school emailed the student or the parents. So anyway. I was aware of it. We, we played around with it. We wrote some essays, you know, air quotes, by just giving it some keywords. And it, I was really impressed by the work product that it spit out. It was, it was pretty good, pretty accurate. Um, 
is as if a person wrote that. And so in preparation for today's show, you and I, Sean, we had talked about maybe talking about the food industries being shut down under the Biden administration and how that's hurt the food supply chain. And I thought to myself, you know what would be interesting? Just an experiment. I'm going to go on chat GPT and I'm going to enter in some keywords, write an essay about the food industry being damaged by the Biden administration. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that that's almost verbatim. That's something what I, like what, 128 industries that were destroyed by the Biden administration. So the results were really interesting. At first, it took way longer. So it just sits there thinking for a minute. Whereas before with my son, when we were talking, we were asking to write historical essays about people in history that affected history for some reason, right, in American history. Well, in this case, it took a second. It took a little while for it to actually start generating text and and that text starting to flow. But what it started out with was, I'm an AI program and I don't disseminate misinformation. And it goes on to basically chastise me for even having put that prompt in there. (laughs) Like, use the word Jordan Peterson and see what it says. So I I went on. So, okay, I said, okay, I'll change it. Maybe destroyed was too strong of a word. You know, maybe that is inflammatory. Maybe not use such a word as destroyed the food industry. So I I put something like uh, write an essay about the food industry under the Biden administration. That's it. Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any other words. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it spit out really rapidly. This huge essay is about uh, seven paragraphs long about how the Biden administration has done a marvelous job due to climate change and all these other factors, how it's implemented all these policies and how the food supply chains are, are not, um, it, 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 well, it's saying the food supply chains are strong. And there's, so it has this whole, this whole narrative, you know, and I'm like, huh, that's crazy. Cause I just read another article to the contrary to that. So just out of curiosity, I thought, okay, well, chastise me for using, language such as destroyed the food industry. So I used the same, I decided to do an experiment. Well, what happens if I substitute the word Biden administration for Trump administration? Ah. I use the exact same verbatim, you know, search or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not even a search. It's just a prompt. I said, one word change, write an essay about how the Trump administration has destroyed the food industry. And I, I was just curious, am I going to get the same misinformation prompt? Am I going to be, you know, chastised again for how dare I say something like that by this AI program? Yeah. No. It took about five seconds and it spit out about eight paragraphs about how the Trump administration has destroyed the food industry in the United States of America. Of course. And I was like, what just happened here? <laughs> so I shared this information with my son who, you know, we had been talking back and forth about it. I said, Christian... You like I tried this experiment. and He was like, "Oh my gosh, that's crazy!" You know, I, I would totally believe that, and um, and he said, "Yeah, it looks like it's biased too." You know, like a lot of other media sources. And I, so I started thinking about that: is the program actually biased, or is it the information set that it's relying on? And I think that's really what it's about because this is this is an AI program. It it doesn't think. It's it's not a human. It doesn't have a brain. It doesn't have emotion. But what it's doing is it's scouring sources on the internet, I imagine, right? All sorts of different sources. It's compiling those, doing different um, analysis as to what to include, what to disregard, how to form these sentences and how to create a narrative or a, a, an essay based on what the research is showing or whatever it's finding on the, as it scours the internet. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as saying that the program itself is a biased program, but I think the inf- information sources that are 
building this information are maybe biased. Or maybe it goes to show that there is a, a more of a negative narrative during the Trump administration than there has been during the Biden administration. And that's really what this AI program is pulling off of. So maybe it's finding in more more um, inflammatory information about the Trump administration than it is the Biden administration. And that's why that happened. I don't know. I don't know why the reason, uh, all the reasons why that happened. But I can tell you that was my experience with using the program. It just begs begs the uh, question, how, how much do we get into the AI um, realm? How much are we going to implement this in, my, in our lives? Years ago, so 10 years ago when I was in law school, I remember the discussion in law school, Sean, maybe you guys talked about it too years ago. You, you went to... With plagiarism. Not only plagiarism, but the idea of computers replacing humans oh, in the oh. attorney, in our field, in, in the legal industry... Maybe not so much when you went to law school. You went to law school maybe four or five years ahead of me, I believe, right, Sean? Yeah, 2005, 2008. Yeah, so um, maybe at that time, things like uh, LegalZoom weren't as well established, or maybe they were just getting kicking. Yeah, they were just getting off the ground. But there was that that discussion that these things could, you know, become very popular and very sophisticated. And But it, it was one of those... This is a boogeyman under the bed we don't really have to worry about. And so by the time I went to law school 10 years ago, that discussion had even gone further because now it had legitimized into kind of like a fear. Now you had attorneys that had bought LegalZoom and really thrown a lot of weight behind it and changed it to the extent that you have live attorneys that could do the work. Because the idea is that just like in a translation program, so I went to Arizona State and my, my degree is in Spanish the Spanish linguistics. And as part of that, I also was admitted to the uh, translation program there at Arizona State. And in the translation program at the time, this is back in, when you were in law school, I was an undergrad. And so it was about 2005, 2006. And um, at the time, Google was, they had a program called Google Translate. And we still know that today. It's really, really sophisticated today as opposed to what it was. But it did a great job even back then. And it does a great job now of translating from language to language. Is it a perfect translation? And this was the conversation that we had way back in 2005 as as it regarded translation. So what it tended to do and still tries to do the same thing is it would do basically a word-for-word translation, which that kind of works. And to a native speaker, they're going to understand mostly what you're trying to say in that word-to-word translation. But in reality, what we found was that it really takes a human element to it. There's a lot of feeling in the language that we use. And so when we go from English, and I say a phrase in English, and I want to translate that to Spanish, the words might be completely different. And it's and I could say I could say it a multitude of ways in Spanish dependent on what feeling I want to give to it. In English, we're pretty rudimentary, much like because we're a Germanic language. And so Germany or German and English, these Germanic languages. Yes, we do have a lot of feeling in, in certain things that we say. However, in Romance languages like French, Italian, uh, Spanish, you could say things, you could say the same thing with different words and emphasizing different words, and it will mean a totally different thing, you know, um, with different feelings and different emotions. So what we found in translation is that it's very difficult to implement that on an, an AI level, artificial intelligent level. It can be done. They're doing better, and it's getting there. However, 
we found that hu the human element of emotion was really a key element when going from one language to another. I find that in my day-to-day -day business as well. As I'm sitting down with a client, Sean, dependent on um, the, the facts that they're presenting to me and their family, I'm going to recommend certain actions for their family. Is it based on emotion? No. It can be a little bit. I'm going to factor in emotions to my decision or my, uh, not so much my decision, but my counsel to them. But it's not all based on emotion. Nor is it some sort of robotic, check the box kind of decision. It's a mix between the two. And you have to be able to kind of vacillate between emotion and, um, you know, this robotic type systematic decision making. And that's what makes humans incredible is our is the ability to use emotion coupled with systematic uh, proven methods in our decision making that really make us unique. And that's what's beautiful about humanity. Well, an AI program, I don't believe it has that ability. Maybe it does. Not yet. Not yet, but, but I think it's getting there. Just recently, we were seeing some AI being demonstrated that can show anger. And in sci-fi movies and, and shows and stuff like that, we see that a lot. You know, the, the AI mm -hmm. robots take over because mm -hmm. they develop some sort of um, anger or feeling, and so they decide that they know more than we do and overtake humanity. Well, in reality, they do. Well, I don't know. Well, Maybe. because they can retain everything. Okay. Well, we got to take a break. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. We are going to switch gears a little bit. Adam was talking about AI and how it has an amazing ability to make our lives easier. We can write essays with it. We can do legal research with it. However, it still hasn't quite replaced the human element. Um, when people come in and visit with us, we like to think that us being able to analyze the individual's feelings and uh, what's going on in their life by seeing beyond what's actually just verbally communicated um, it is an important element that goes into putting together a comprehensive estate plan. So not yet does LegalZoom replace us, but um, perhaps on the horizon. What I want to talk about is hypocrites. Um, and and that, that just is the thing that rubs me wrong. People that put themselves out, it's more, um, I think, acceptable today to be who you are and uh, that, unless you're, of course, a white conservative male Christian, um, then don't do that. But anything else, it's okay to be who you are and, and society in general accepts you. And I like that concept in general. I like the idea of being authentic. What I don't like is when people put out one air, like I'm holier than thou, I'm more ethical, I'm more righteous, and then in reality, they will undercut you, they will lie, they'll cheat, they'll steal. And we see this a lot in politics. In fact, it's, it, it really kind of defines political atmosphere. And uh, Bill Maher does such a fantastic job of introducing this concept in 
with politicians and celebrities when it comes to climate change and all, all sorts of issues. But uh, I'm going to play a clip here from Bill Maher, and uh, this was back in 2021, about uh, hypocrites and climate change. The latest climate conference is underway in Glasgow, Scotland, and Greta Thunberg has once again shown the world that she is the conscience of her generation. Someone must tell her, you may be the conscience of your generation, but you don't represent it. I really wish you did, Greta, but you don't. But I can show you who does. <laughs> Greta, you have 13 million followers on Instagram, which is great. But Kylie Jenner has 279 million, which is more. <laughs> I mean, seriously, who is the real influencer in that generation? The model citizen or the model? The young woman who refuses to fly or the one who refuses to fly commercial? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Greta gets where she's going on a sailboat powered by the wind. Kylie takes a private jet powered by Exxon. <laughs> and she's 21 times more popular. Now, this is not a screed against comfort or capitalism. I'm fond of both. And I give Kylie credit. She's built a massive business empire without ever releasing a sex tape. <laughs> and, li and like her dad, she's a self-made woman. But Kylie embodies and embraces a lifestyle that is pretty much the opposite of carbon neutral. And the younger generations love it. Last week, Kylie posted a tour of her shoe closet, which houses well over a thousand pairs. She also has entire rooms of things she only's worn once. I don't think Greta would approve of that. <laughs> In polls, young people always claim to be more concerned about climate change than other generations, but they don't act like it. They throw around buzzwords like sustainable and shame people or forget to bring a cloth bag to Trader Joe's. But one of their favorite YouTubers is Mr. Beast, who's famous for stunts like, I gave my 40 millionth subscriber 40 cars. <laughs> Jason Derulo celebrated his 22nd millionth follower by eating 22 hamburgers. <laughs> the cognitive dissonance between planet-destroying conspicuous consumption and planet-saving rhetoric is breathtaking. You say you love Greta and her message, but everything else you love is a climate disaster. Far from rejecting consumerism, young people are so obsessed with labels that venerable fashion houses like Balenciaga have pivoted from selling couture dresses to rich women to selling baseball hats to teenagers. And where does a 20-something get the money to pay $400 for a hat that borrows the Bernie Sanders logo because... <laughs> Because you're like a socialist and stuff? <laughs> From mommy and daddy, of course. Oh, and also maybe by trading Bitcoin, the mining of which is worse for the environment than actual mining. <laughs> Cryptocurrency uses more energy than Netflix, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and Google combined, and more than some entire nations. And yet young people could not love it more if it came with a side of avocado toast. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
94% of crypto buyers are either millennials or Gen Z, which makes it ring a little hollow when you're out there chanting for us to put the planet ahead of profits. And what do crypto fans say about this? They say, well, yes, it uses too much energy now, but in the future, <laughs> oh yeah, the future, that's right. Same thing my generation said, let them handle it in the future, I'll get mine now. Like Bitcoin, the smartphone is a huge contributor to carbon emissions because the cloud isn't an actual cloud, of course. It's a vast network of servers using energy. And all that liking and following and subscribing requires lots of fossil fuels. And yet you would need the jaws of life to pry a phone out of the hands of anyone under 30. What would it take to convince Gen Z and millennials to give up their phones? A pollster once asked, 43% said it would take $5 million to give up their phone. One in 10 said they'd sacrifice a finger for it. That deserves a high four. Look, I know it would be fire. Uh, <laughs> to be able to both live like Kylie and also save the planet, but you can't do both. Last year when Australia was devastated by wildfires, Greta reminded us that we still fail to make the connection between the climate crisis and ex increased extreme weather events. Kylie too was moved by the disaster and tweeted about how the loss of animal life breaks her heart. Then she quickly followed up with a post of her new $1,500 Louis Vuitton mink slippers. <laughs> It's always so sad when fire kills potential slippers. <laughs> Kids, you're going to have to make a choice here. Do you want to be progressive or excessive? Team drastic or team plastic? When Kylie's lifestyle becomes uncool and unpopular and you stop loving Bitcoin and stop thinking that stuffing your face is harmless, I'll take you seriously. Until then, shut up about how older generations ruin the planet. We, we get it. Boomers dropped the ball on the environment. We did. We dropped it like it was hot. And for that, I can only say, whoops. <laughs> yeah, you're right, we dropped it. But have you picked it up? I wish your generation was better than mine. I really do. But the sad truth is, we're completely the same. Lots of talk, and at the end of the day, hopelessly seduced and addicted to pigging out on convenience, luxury, and consumption. So that's it. You can either be the fake and private jet generation or the one that saves the planet. But you can't be both because fake are not biodegradable. So on this show, we like to not only provide examples of what's going wrong in politics and in society, but hopefully present some solutions to those. And um, Alex Epstein, he's, he's a client scientist. He's devoted his life to understanding what is actually going on with the climate and um, global warming. And he presents feasible solutions to what we can do and actual what's going on, actually what's going on with human contribution to global warming. What 
is the likelihood of our contribution to the increase in the temperature. And there is an increase in temperature. Over the past uh, 100 years, there's been an increase of about two and a half degrees. Um, whether or not that is due to human activity and the burning of fossil fuels, apparently all scientists, except those loony, outcasted um, conspiracy theorists, believe that it is. But Alex Epstein, he talks about, well, okay, maybe maybe that's true. Let's, let's just take it at face value, because if, if you Google anything otherwise, you're going to be um, shunned, and you're also going to get a bunch of warning labels that you're looking at false information. But uh, what is wrong with a little bit more carbon in the atmosphere? In fact, he talks about there's 15% green trending in the world right now. In the past 20 years, arid parts of the world have become 15% greener. We're talking about places that are using the arid parts for agriculture that are producing 15% more crops because of the carbon in the atmosphere. We all know that plants breathe in carbon dioxide. And when they have more carbon dioxide in the air, their pores that breathe that in don't have to open up as widely. So there's less water loss in the plants and they produce more. So global warming is a thing. It might be due to the Milankovitch curve, which talks about the Earth's orbit and how it changes over periods of years. It might be due to human contribution and the burning of fossil fuels. But either way, what is the best approach to addressing the issue? Is it cutting out everything that has provided us with the ability to have nice things in life and to help out other individuals, other countries, and, and help, pe help pull people out of poverty? Or is it to look at the actual issue, determine how serious it is, and then address the specific things like pollution, and instead of just quantifying everything that is emitting carbon dioxide as pollution. There are pollutants. There are uh, the pollutants that occurred with the train wreck in uh, East Palestine, Ohio, right? That, that's serious stuff. And we want to address those uh, ecological issues. But Alex Epstein, Bjorn Lomberg, Jordan Peterson, all of those individuals talk really about the science of what's going on in our planet and how humans have actually developed a cleaner, more friendly, both to human life and animal life over periods of time throughout our history. And that is something that produces actual answers instead of just um, virtue signaling because you recycle or shaming anybody else that tends to look at any other answers for why the climate might be warming or if it is necessarily a terrible thing that it's warming a few degrees. We have to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. I'm Sean Garner in studio with Adam Hanson and Cody Beeson. And we're talking about AI and how it helps us out in life and how it also 
potentially makes it more difficult to focus and become actual scholars instead of just letting the computer the computer write a scholarly paper for us. Uh, we're also talking about the climate and all the activists who most of which are hypocrites. Most of the the biggest activists for climate change fly private jets. Most consume a lot of products that produce carbon into the atmosphere. As soon as they stop doing the things that they're wanting the rest of us to stop doing, then maybe they could lead by example. As as soon as they stop wearing clothes that have anything to do with petroleum-based product or driving cars that have anything to do with that or using any um, of the modern conveniences that come from mining that obviously have to is, is done through big machinery driven through diesel fuel, then start preaching to us because that's the lifestyle that they want us to adopt in the future. Why don't they adopt it now, get comfortable with it, show us how great it is, and then lead by example, and perhaps they'll have a bit more credibility when they preach down to us from their ivory tower about how terrible we are. But I know, for example, one thing... Um, we don't play the piano on ivory keys anymore, and the elephants are a whole lot happier about that. Um, we don't comb our hair with uh, turtle shell combs anymore, and the sea turtles are a whole lot happier about that. It takes petroleum byproducts, this substance that is this black, oozy, if you don't use it for making combs and everything else in the world, you know, medical instruments and uh, creating energy, then it's just going to stay in the ground and it's something that's gross to step in. Or you could use it for all these modern conveniences and save the sea turtles and the elephants. So let's see how they run the world without all of these modern conveniences, without any of these petroleum products, and uh, then they'll have a, a leg to stand on in lecturing us about how to live. Now, speaking about having your priorities right and uh, walking the walk and practicing what you preach is yesterday. So we, we've got this system, we've got this routine in our family that when we wake up, before we leave the house, we pray together as a family. That helps us slow down for just a moment, recognize what's important, uh, thank God for the fact that we have another day to go to school, have the opportunity to learn, have the opportunity to go out and, and participate in civilized society, that we live in this great country, that we have our family, and we're still safe. And, uh, and if we're not healthy, we pray for that and um, things like that. And so um, when we come home from work, we do at least three things. Um, we read some scriptures, we pray, and then I typically read to my children. I read a book. Um, we just finished up Where the Red Fern Grows. They loved that. And, and and there is no absolutely zero comparison to watching that movie with your children as compared to um, reading the book with them. And so now we've moved on. There's um, another book by the same author, and it is called Summer of the Monkeys. And so that's what we're reading right now. And I read that to them. My, my younger kids, uh, my six-year-old and my nine-year-old, they fall asleep every time when I'm reading to them. My 12-year-old, he'll listen, and inevitably he'll beg me to read on to the next chapter, and then you know, we'll leave it at that. But um, it, it's our routine, and it works well as long as I follow it. So last night I was working on a project, and I really enjoy getting outside, getting into my shop and working on projects. 
and I had put together this um, steel structure, and uh, I had just tack welded it where everything was in place. I made all the cuts. I did all of the prep work for it, which is the boring and, 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 and more difficult parts of the project. And I was getting right down to the part where I could weld the seams and put it up together and it was going to actually start looking like an actual structure. And so I was excited to be there. And uh, then eight o'clock rolls around and that's the time where we're supposed to assemble and, and read scriptures for 15 minutes. And uh, my wife calls out to me and, you know, I'm welding and grinding and I pretend not to hear her. And uh, so they, they go on and they read without me. And then she calls out to me again and she says, hey, the kids are going to bed. Will you come in and say prayers? And so I do. I go in and I just, I, I don't commit, right? I take off my welding helmet and only one welding glove. I leave the other welding glove on because I'm like, I'm, I got to finish this project. And uh, so I go in and we say prayers and the kids all look at me and they say, what about Summer of the Monkeys? I said, you know, I really need to finish this project, as if I do. I mean, it's it's something that I want to do, but it's not like anybody's depending on me for it. And uh, they look at me with this depressed look, and they give me the puppy eyes. And uh, I made the wrong choice. I went back out, and I, and I welded. And uh, so I spend the next 45 minutes putting all these nice welds, and I'm actually pretty happy with the welds. I'm, not, I'm an amateur welder, so when I can get a nice clean bead, I'm pretty happy about it. So I put all these beads down, I extra reinforce it, it looks good, and then I lift up the structure, and it's totally cattywampus. It's totally crooked. I had forgotten, after I tack welded it, what I needed to do was straighten everything out. That's the whole purpose of tack welding it, so then you can straighten the parts out that you, you laid down that were crooked. And so now I've reinforced all these seams, and it is totally crooked, and I'm going to have to cut this thing apart and redo it. And uh, so I said, you know what, forget it. I rolled my welder away, took off my uh, leather gloves and helmet, and went in and read to them. And better late than never, the two littles were still already or already drowsy and, and falling asleep, but the 12-year-old was thankful that I went in and, and finished the book. But how much better off would I have been done if I just followed through with those those priorities? And sometimes the, the biggest priorities in life are the little things. Taking time out of your, your schedule or what you want to do to um, spend time with the people that you love. Because I guarantee, no matter how perfect that project might end up when I've done that still project, it's never going to be as good as the memories and the relationship that I developed with my kids um, through reading these stories with them. And Adam and I, we encounter this on a daily basis where individuals want our advice on how to leave an inheritance for their children that will um, promote them in being good citizens and, and productive people in society. And inevitably, we're at a loss for a, a true answer because there is no snake oil. There is no silver bullet. Spend time with your kids. Live the life that you want them to live when they grow up and be the person that you want them to emulate. And that's what you can do. That's the greatest inheritance that you could possibly pass down. Because when you um, misplace your priorities and get more focused and do what is human nature, and that is to become selfish, then inevitably the people around you will do the same thing. And we have this culture that we're living in today, which is hypocritical, that preaches that you out there ought to save the planet while I, myself, fly on private jets and use all of the uh, luxuries that come from petroleum byproducts.
We talked last episode about how we had the opportunity, Adam and I had the opportunity, to uh, host 12 congressional members here in Yuma. We got to drive them around, chauffeur them from place to place, and uh, show them what the border was like and what Yuma, being a border town, is like. And so they had, it was the judicial committee that came down, and they wanted to do a judicial hearing to, or committee hearing, to determine what the issues are and what proposals they could put forth to fix the border crisis. And it was it was a great opportunity to rub shoulders with them a little bit, and, and more particularly their staffers, who contribute quite a bit behind the scenes to what's going on in the policy and what their talking points are. Um, one of the things that surprised me as we were driving around, and Adam, you chime in here, um, give me your feedback on this as well, is that it seemed like we were seeing Yuma through rose-colored glasses for that 24-hour period. For example, um, when we went to the hospital, I generally, I, I've been to the hospital a lot of times because i got a lot of kids, speci- specifically the maternity ward and the emergency room. <laughs> and uh, it's always packed. Both. Both places are always packed. Unless I call a doctor in advance that is in the emergency room and can get me in, I'm going to be waiting in the emergency room uh, for six hours or more. That is typical. Um, the maternity ward, they I'll tell you what, they're, they're pretty great over there. Um, they're very efficient. They know what they're doing. But it is hard to find a parking place. And we went over there, and we had um, four 12-passenger vans that were filled with the Congress members and their staffers, and we were able to park, and, and, and the parking lot was, I mean, not empty, but close to it. In fact, when we parked at the emergency room, we parked at the area where the ambulance entrance is, and I didn't see any ambulances come in. We sat there and waited for probably 45 minutes to an hour, and there was not a single ambulance that came in through that area. And when... Um, the staffers came out and got back in the van. I said, how was it? They said, it was great. You know, they said that things run very smoothly. And uh, although they could use some more resources, they're not necessarily overwhelmed. And uh, and they do um, process and assist a lot of people that come across the border illegally. But it doesn't overwhelm them. And those people that are coming in illegally don't get any preferential treatment. And I said, okay. Well, when I go into the waiting room, I witness Border Patrol agents escorting people that I assume to be illegal aliens, and they walk right past all of us sitting in the waiting room back into the emergency room. And I witnessed that a dozen times when I'm sitting in the waiting room. So I'm like, well, what you just saw there is not what I experience on a daily basis. And... uh I said, what did they say the waiting time was in the waiting room? They said, they didn't really mention it. It wasn't really an issue that came up. And I said, not an issue. I mean, when it's an emergency room, you you would think that this is where I go when there's an emergency. I'm waiting 6 to 12 hours to sit here. I could actually drive to Phoenix, get the medical service I need, and be back home in bed by the time I get through with the waiting room and the emergency room. I'm not blaming YRMC for this. I'm blaming the fact that... Everybody that's crossing the border, and we're talking 2,500 people on average a day, is using that as their primary care facility. And it's just unsustainable. The next stop was the food bank. So we pull up to the food bank. Now, the food bank is just across the street from 
um, where I drop my kids off at school. They go to Yuma Lutheran, so I pass by the food bank frequently. Also, my wife actually volunteers there every Thursday, not every Thursday. I think it's um, one Thursday a month she volunteers at the food bank. And uh, I, we, we pull into the parking lot, and again, there's plenty of rooms for all four of our 12-passenger vans, so much room that we don't even park in the regular parking spots. We park, like, across all four parking spots that, uh, that a van that size would take up, just parking um, parallel. And uh, it's, it's empty, and so they go in and they spend 45 minutes in there and uh, they come back out and ask how their experience was and, and if they witnessed people coming in and getting their groceries and, and getting assistance. And they said no. They just talked about how efficient it is and how um, generous the community is to contributing to the food bank and how well run the, the process is. And I said, really? Because every time I pass by here, not only is the parking lot full, but the extension to the parking lot is where it is it's this gravel parking area is also full and and I've seen times when it's, especially when it's hot where they put up five six seven pop-ups to keep people that are waiting in line out of the hot sun as they wait to go in and, and get the the assistance that they need and I didn't see any of that today so they must have been closed or something and the staffer said well we didn't hear anything about them being closed or this being anything irregular or running differently than they had been but that's what we saw and so it, it, what it comes back down to is it's not even who you listen to anymore today I mean these people are going to go and if you YouTube right now the visit from the Judicial Committee to Yuma you'll see it on Fox News you'll see it on Forbes you'll see it on Sky News you'll see it on CNN you'll see it on all these different networks and every network's going to have a different take on it but none of them are going to have any accurate information about how Yuma actually runs. I see more um, people that cross the border when I drive down 4th Avenue any time of day than we saw when we went to each of those facilities or when we talked to Border Patrol. And I had a Border Patrol agent in that um, spoke with me um, recently. In fact, I speak with one probably once a week um, for estate planning purposes. And their general consensus is, Yes, the border is wide open. They go through a series of checks to see whether or not they're on some uh, list as as terrorists and what type of criminal background they have. And then the process is they say we have, first of all, they read off the statement that um, allows them to be seeking a safe asylum here in the United States and get appointed a court date. And then they provide a phone number. And that phone number is for them to call somebody, and that's going to be, I don't know if it's called their sponsor or what it is, but it's somebody for the Border Patrol to release them to so they can have a place to stay and uh, await their court date. And I said, when they give you this phone number, who is it? Is it an uncle? Is it a cousin? Is it a brother or a sister? And he says, oftentimes they don't even know. They say, this is the phone number that we were given to call. Given by who? I don't know. The people that helped us get across the border. Okay. So... Literally, they're being dropped off. It's this coordinated human trafficking process, and there is no check or balance to it. And we both agreed, well, in this particular Border Patrol agent, he said, listen, I absolutely agree that these people ought to be productive members of society, the people that want to come across and and participate in this this great American dream and, and society that we live in. 
but right now they can't even work for the period of time that they're waiting their their court date because they're here illegally. And until the court determines that they actually meet all the criteria for seeking asylum uh, or sanctuary, then they can't work. And so we've got five million people in the past two years that are here that can't work, only a fraction of which is going to show up to a court date to even become legal to work eventually. And that is not the American dream at all. What kind of satisfaction can they get when they can't work legally? When I can't employ them as somebody that lives here and wants to make our society and community better, employ these individuals who are seeking out a better life. And uh, so that is, that is a big issue. Again, we want to address the issues but present solutions. And one of the solutions is we both talked about, why, why don't we implement what, what's going on with these airports to the border? TSA, as flawed as they may be, gets a lot of people through an airport every single day. They look at your license. They look at your ID. If it doesn't match up, you're not getting on the plane. Put the TSA agents on the border and look at the ID. If these guys aren't terrorist risks, let them in. Get them a pass to work, to contribute to society, to support themselves and pay taxes. And uh, so we can actually go forward instead of just constantly bicker about what's going on at the border. And in the meanwhile, all the people that are coming across are not only being trafficked, but they don't have any real potential to work when they get here. That's all the time that we have for today. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner & Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.